In um, the year of 1905, the writer Max Weber wrote a book called The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism, nice, snappy, catchy title, in which he argued that what is known as the Protestant work ethic had shaped Western society in a way that ultimately created a path for the Industrial Revolution. What he meant by this was that whereas the medieval concept of piety or holiness was to hide yourself away in a monastery or a convent and be separated from the world physically as much as spiritually, after the Reformation, the mindset was much more to sanctify everyday life, to seek to reflect, meet with, and glorify God in the labour of our lives. And so historically, this is probably just one of many forces that were in play at that time. But what it taps into is that there is no separation between the everyday work of our lives and our spirituality. The two very much belong together, and that work is part of God's design for us. So right at the beginning, God works to create everything and then rests. Man is created to work, but because he falls away from God, in Genesis 3, the ground is cursed. Life is painful and work is frustrating. We are fallen people working for other fallen people in an environment that doesn't like us. And so, by the time the law is given to Israel, God is trying to help his people navigate this a bit. Deuteronomy and Leviticus talk about not oppressing hired servants or workers, which Paul picks up on later in Ephesians, when he challenges both slaves and masters that they answer to the same God. Both of these would have been hugely countercultural in ancient slave economies. Likewise, the law about leaving the gleanings of the harvest for the disadvantaged is about caring for the less well-off, the unable to work. When we looked at Ruth in our morning services last year, we saw how this enabled a displaced Moabite refugee to enter the lineage of Jesus. And so there's a challenge to morality and caring in what God begins to teach us about work, but Proverbs and the other wisdom books of the Bible have some other things to teach us too. And so in chapter 3, verse 24, Proverbs talks about the sound sleep enjoyed by those who walk in God's wisdom. We'll think a bit more about that in a moment, which we can look at as the rest and relaxation which our work earns us, and which is somewhat different from the sleep of the sluggard, which is described in chapter 6. Again, as we take the Bible as a whole, we see that there's provision in God's thinking for those who can't work. And so in commanding us to go to the ants, this isn't disregarding people's circumstances like some ancient Israelite version of Atos, irrespective of physical capability. But if you've ever had ants invade your kitchen and had to put poison down to get rid of them, it is perhaps a little humbling, a little galling for us high and mighty humans to be told to go and learn a lesson from these creatures. 
Go to the ant, you sluggard, consider its ways and be wise. This is Proverbs at its most gentle. It has no commander, no overseer, nor ruler, yet it stores its provisions, it gathers its food. How long will you lie there? How long will you sleep? But see, the ant is never intimidated by its workload. The ant is a great team worker, and the ant never leaves tasks unfinished. So the ant warns us against endemic laziness, which will stop us from fulfilling our potential or providing for ourselves. In verse 9, the question to the sluggard as to how soon he will rise from his bed is surely rhetorical. That would be too much like action. Proverbs 21 adds, the desire of the sluggard kills him, for his hands will not labour. All day he craves and craves. And in chapter 12, the slothful will not roast his game, but the diligent will get precious wealth. The sluggard wants achievement with no cost and often starts but doesn't finish. And so back in chapter, tw- chapter 6, we see the result of all of this. Verse 11's image of poverty coming on us like a robber is quite a stark one about how quickly circumstances can reverse. Proverbs, we must remember, is situational. These are principles, not promises. And sometimes setbacks befall us, however careful we may be. But what this is designed to protect us from is the consequences of our own inaction. Chapter 16 tells us, he who is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. Likewise, chapter 10, a slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. As another contrast, another bit of Proverbs, chapter 22 asks, do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. So here's the question all this is asking us. Are we giving what we do our best, whether it's our work, our devotional life, which is our relationship with God, our ministry, our personal relationships, whatever else we function in? Everything that's worth achieving in life has to be worked at. We're going to look at a few minutes in glorifying God through our work, but perhaps it's also worth considering that the Diligence that Proverbs calls us to here strikes against the sluggard in all of us. If you like, it fights our fallen nature. And so that just as there are days when we really don't feel like going to work, and I know that never happens to any of you, or doing our best at work, there'll be times when we feel the same about the spiritual disciplines that we need to maintain a strong relationship with God. We have to work at those too. And even what we want to achieve in our leisure pursuits too. And so in chapter 26, as we heard read, the picture of the sluggard is developed. A sluggard says there's a lion in the road, a fierce lion roaming the streets. As a door turns on its hinges, so a sluggard turns on its bed. A sluggard buries his hand in the dish, but he's too lazy to bring it to his mouth. And so, if you're feeling very brave tomorrow morning, you could phone your manager and your tutor and say, sorry, I couldn't come in today, but there's a lion in the road. 
but is this challenging us perhaps about reasons we invent sometimes as to why we can't do things? Verse 14's image is even more arresting, isn't it? The sluggard turns on his bed like a door on its hinge, turning in a tight circle, but going nowhere. The sluggard is too lazy even to eat properly. He's lost the will to even feed himself properly. The image here is that he can't even lift his hand. But there are many dishes, aren't there? Not only nutritional, but spiritual as well, that we can and should eat from, as the sluggard doesn't here, yet lack the will. Psalm 34 tells us, taste, see that the Lord is good. It's very easy, isn't it, for our God time to be squeezed out by tiredness or laziness to put our hand in his dish, but never lift it to our mouth. But we have to keep tasting because a strong devotional life will help us with life's other disciplines and because tasting God is also an image of pleasure. Pleasure that needs effort but the joy of beginning or ending our day with our creator and redeemer. Challenged about food, Jesus says in John's gospel that his food is to do the will of the one who sent him and to finish his work. So, if we imagine working for God's kingdom as one of the dishes that the sluggard is too indolent to eat from, will we bring the same work ethic to that and let ourselves find the same ultimate satisfaction there that Jesus found? So, what dishes should we have lifted our hands from but didn't? In our spiritual life, our work, our pursuits. The verses read from chapter 24 give us the stark image of the sluggard's vineyard, desolate and neglected, passing by the field of the sluggard, by the vineyard of the man lacking sense, and it's overgrown with thistles, covered in nettles, its stone wall broken down, things lost because not maintained, not done, not prayed about, not worked at. But alongside all this admonishing about discipline, the Bible's wisdom also cares for our well-being and satisfaction. Proverbs chapter 3 tells us that when you lie down, you will not be afraid, your sleep will be sweet. This is those who've walked in God's wisdom, spent time well, enjoying rest and relaxation. Again, it tells us in chapter 23, don't weary yourself to get wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. Again, in chapter 10, the blessing of the Lord brings wealth without painful toil for it. So alongside Proverbs teaching on diligence is a reminder that God is our provider ultimately, as we thought about last week when James spoke to us about wealth, but also perhaps a warning against burnout. Not wearing ourselves out to get more and more or do more and more and not forgetting to be God-centred, but to remember that ultimately it's God who gives us opportunity. 
Psalm 127 challenges us further on this, telling us that unless God builds a house, they labour in vain that build it. It says, it's useless for you to work so hard from early morning to late at night, anxiously working for food to eat, for God gives rest to his loved ones. Again, this isn't contradicting the teaching on diligence, but just calling us back to the right balance. And Jesus calls us back to this balance as well, doesn't he, when he tells us in Matthew 6 that we can't serve both God and money, that one of those will require us to reject the other, that true riches are eternal, and that the God who cares for creatures that neither sow nor reap will care for us too. So we're called to work hard, fight against laziness, but don't make work or wealth our God, don't burn out, and don't forget where our true priorities are, in communion with God and in the relationships he gives us too. We have to work hard when we do work, but if our life is nothing but work, we'll miss out on things that matter more. But with all this, our studies, our jobs and careers can and hopefully should still be satisfying. We may remember that last year when we went through Ecclesiastes together, that book confronts head-on how frustrating toil can be in our fallen world. In reminding us that unless God is at the centre of what we do, then things are ultimately meaningless It then counsels us at the end of chapter 3 that there is nothing better than for us to find satisfaction in our work, for that is our lot. And so satisfaction can mean thinking out what we want to do, what suits our particular skills, and also perhaps to recognise that finding satisfaction is something we can choose to do over and above the emotions of particular days, difficult people, stressy situations. Finding satisfaction can mean rightly having long-term goals, but not letting that rob you of the ability to find meaning and purpose in the day-to-day business of work and life. C.S. Lewis said this, Never in peace or war commit the virtue of your happiness to the future. Happy work is best done by the man who takes his long-term plans somewhat lightly and works from moment to moment as to the Lord. So we can rightly have long-term goals, but what if they take longer than we've planned or don't work out how we've planned? Does that mean we've wasted our time, wasted our life, wasted our effort? Or has the journey still been enjoyable, still been a learning curve, still been an opportunity to be who God wants us to be because we've let ourselves find satisfaction in the everyday? And so finally, thinking about working as to the Lord can perhaps pose a final question for us. How can we glorify God in our work? In Thessalonians, Paul says very bluntly, if someone will not work, let them not eat. Again, in the context of the whole Bible, this implies ability to work. It's not penalising those who can't. 
but it's a good challenge, isn't it? He goes on to tell people not to just mess around at work, not to steal time. He also says, you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you. Paul often worked as a tent maker on his travels. So people could disagree with the gospel, disagree with its message, disagree with the way that then, as now, it often challenged contemporary culture. But they couldn't say Paul was lazy. They couldn't say he was idle. They couldn't say he was a layabout. What about us? As C.S. Lewis quoted, Paul also challenges us in Colossians to work as to the Lord. Just as Jesus said, whatever we do or don't do for the least of our brethren, we do or don't do for him. Paul brings this into our work and says, work heartily for the Lord and not for men. It's this kind of thing that Max Weber was getting at and it challenges us. What difference might it make on Monday morning if we think we're not just working for UEA or Aviva or Tesco or whoever, but for God in our secular lives too? And so Proverbs 16.3 tells us this. Commit to the Lord whatever you do and he will establish your plans. So will we go to our work or our studies Committing our days to God in prayer so that as Proverbs challenges, we can be trusting him, leaning not on our own understanding, seeking his wisdom for things like the right way to make Christian stands or to show his love and care to others. Will we have integrity in our work, use our skills well? Will we be a thankful people moving on when it's the right time to perhaps, but finding joy, satisfaction in the day-to-day. Finally, as we think about what's now called work-life balance, will we be diligent, but also remember that it's great to be doing something that we love in life, that we find rewarding. Real life is perhaps in the other arenas of our lives, in fellowship with others, but especially in our communion with the God who gives us opportunity and work, but also rest.